Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can check us out at Apple, Google, and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, you can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. One of the interviews I was most excited about for the uh, Sundance Film Festival was with composer Nathan Halpern. He's composed over the years Swallow and Minding the Gap, among other projects. But Sundance, he had three projects. He had Watcher and Emily the Criminal, as well as the documentary short The Martha Mitchell Effect. But because of my interests and love of film music, I wanted to do more um, in-depth conversation than just talking about his Sundance work. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was really terrific. And uh, I'm pleased to be joined on this episode by composer Nathan Halpern. Well, first of all, um, congratulations on having so much uh, going on at the Sundance Film Festival this year. You have three projects there. You have two features and one short film. And uh, what, I mean, I know it's it's a different type of feel because of the fact that everything's virtual. How is, what, how does that feel to have like all of that going on at once at something like Sundance? I, I think I, I would just say that, you know, each of the films that are, that are playing here, these are all films that, you know, the directors have spent years and just poured so much sort of blood, sweat and tears and passion into mm-hmm. for, you know, so long. And then, you know, obviously made them, you know, particularly the narratives under extremely trying circumstances in COVID. Um, and, you know, these are such special personal films that it's just, it's very exciting. It makes me very happy to see, you know, those kinds of films getting this platform and this honor of getting to, premiere at Sundance like this. It's okay. Well, before we get to those films, though, I wanted to get to know you a little bit more as far as your history, your career, how you kind of got started as in film music, because I'm somebody who I was very interested in film music as a young, at a young age. I even yeah. have done a couple of short films myself just for friends and stuff like that. But um, what, was, what was it that first got you interested in music? Um, well, see, you know, I, I began playing music at, at quite a young age. Um, my father had been a folk performer in the 1960s and played in the coffee houses in New York City in that, you know, sort of inside Lewin Davis mm-hmm. uh, kind of period and uh, zeitgeist. And, um, and I started, I started playing guitar uh, maybe around 10 or 11 and um, I took a couple of lessons at that point, but I wasn't particularly interested in that sort of thing. What I found I was really most interested in was writing songs and uh, and writing my own music. And then sort of that went from there through the years of um, uh, working with four tracks and recording, playing in bands, playing in sort of underground music and post-punk worlds in, uh, in New York City um, over the years. And I would say kind of at that same time, you know, from the kind of preteen years through through teen years, I was also developing, you know, a tremendous interest in theater and in film. Um, and these are things that I was 
very engaged with, um, and I certainly started becoming, you know, really interested in some of my favorite directors as as a teenager. Um, you know, I was particularly interested in in that time, and this becomes pertinent with some of the films um, uh, we'll we'll talk about today. But you know, I was very interested in directors like uh, Roman Polanski and David Cronenberg, Coen Brothers. Things that that was that was all really. Um, uh, for me at that point, as well as international cinema. And then, but these two interests were always sort of developing in parallel, you know, like I didn't, I hadn't fully put them together um, until just a little bit later. And then I was playing in bands um, in New York City, as I say, in the kind of underground and uh, post-punk world and, and, you know, and touring in the States and Europe. But at that same time, when I was, you know, active in music, you know, being active in music in New York City, I was also spending a lot of time you know, very engaged with cinema, spending a lot of time at Film Forum in New York and at uh, Anthology Film Archives and, and places like this. And um, and that interest in music, uh, that interest in film and music were happening in parallel. And, you know, my interest in film was, you know, sort of personal and aesthetic and soul enriching and all of that stuff, but was also a source of musical inspiration, you know? And I had had that, I'd had the experience um, you know, going back to 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 being a teenager, watching films and having a real musical reaction to them, and just mm -hmm. sort of being inspired to compose a piece of music or songs. I, I remember having this experience um, with uh, with Rosemary's Baby when I was fifteen or sixteen, and spending all night, you know, making music on the four track after having watched it. Night of the Hunter. I remember, you know, another one. So I've always kind of had this. Sort of emotional, uh, this emotional and musical response, mm -hmm. I should say, uh, to, to cinema that really um, moves me. And then it was a little bit kind of after that when these kind of two parallel worlds for me started to come together. Um, when some editors that I knew asked me for music for some projects they were working on, and then my sort of uh, engagement in film scoring and directly scoring to picture went from there. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know for me, especially once I really became, just became fully in love with film music, I, I know, you know, obviously growing up, I, I've watched movies like Star Wars, E.T., so you get the John Williams aesthetic and all of that. And then yeah. as, as a teenager, you know, I wa would watch a little bit more adult movies and stuff like that. And then something like then you watch something for me it was the crow and the way yeah. that music is used in that movie that is just so impactful because it it's i felt like there there was that time where just it seemed like somebody was using music in a very different way than i was used to and i think mm -hmm. that's one of the things that's always really interesting about film soundtracks is that's certainly one of the things that um as I started to grow my appreciation of film music, it was those films that would use film that would use music in a way that just kind of hit your ear in a bit different of a way, whether it was the type of music or whether it was the yes. sound of the score. Um, what was the type of thing that you gravitated to as a musician when it came to the film soundtracks you started to love? Well, you know, to your point about these these scores that might sort of use music in a different way or might these soundtracks that, you know, that 
might use aspects of kind of songs or pop music or something that you might not expect to hear as part of a soundtrack and the kind of back and forth between them. I find that dynamic really interesting mm-hmm. um, because I realize in fact that a lot of the music that I was really drawn to and spent a lot of time listening to had, I realize in retrospect, a deep relationship with film music that I was at a real sort of a simpatico back and forth that I was always fully aware of when I was listening to it. So, you know, some of my favorite music were, or things like uh, The Birthday Party, which was Nick Cave's first band, um, The Velvet Underground, uh, Scott Walker, um, Wu-Tang Clan. These are all things that actually, as we sort of go back and find that a lot of this um, music, there, there is a real sort of influence and back and forth with and influence from certain great film scores, you know, particularly the work of Morricone, right? Like mm. some of those score, I was just talking about uh, the great silence. You hear that and you're like, this sounds like some like incredible, like European underground group from the 2000s. It's just like 40 or 50 years ahead of its time. But meanwhile, all these things are kind of influencing each other uh, in interesting ways. Um, and again, I, I, I think too that, um, you know, the, the, some of the RZA production um, in, in Wu-Tang Clan is really important there too and speaks to um, a lot of these dynamics where you're um, taking influence from kinds of sounds from cinema and then kind of recontextualizing them different ways and mm-hmm. kind of reinventing them. Um, I think that, that stuff is incredibly important um, uh, both for me and I, I think probably for a lot of people whether whether they are aware of it or not. And um, so I, I, I think, um, you know, uh, like I said, you know, Scott Walker, Serge Gainsbourg, like these are people who, you, you know, I, I realize now like this, these are, you know, artists whose work I loved so much and their work was quite engaged in some form or another with cinema, with taking influence from cinema, being, you know, with soundtrack, you know, certainly like, you know, the, the Gainsbourg album, you know, Melody Nelson was in fact a soundtrack album. I mean, I didn't really think about that much when I would listen to it, but that was kind of designed for that, for the film that he directed, which I've never even seen. But um, so that that interrelationship uh, is is pretty deep and uh, and goes back in interesting ways. I, I'm sure um, we, um, uh, I, I did a, a soundtrack work for this show called Sound Breaking, um, and um, which I did with my friend uh, Chris Ruggiero. And I think it was in that show where they discussed the idea that um, the, you know, the Beatles production of the strings and Eleanor Rigby was, you know, influ- was influenced by the strings uh, by Bernard Herrmann and Seigel. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a terrific um, interplay that, that goes back that I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, and and it's it's one of those things that it's always kind of interesting to see. And to your point, it's really it's always fascinating to see the ways that different filmmakers approach the use of music. And then you, to your point, you're mentioning artists who are bringing film aesthetics, film music into their art. And I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like you know, there's certainly philosophical debates that can be had when it comes to remixing but in a way i mean that's kind of that's that's one of the more fascinating things about cinema because of the fact that you think about something like 2001 which takes iconic pieces of music from these great works of classical music 
and completely gives you a different context for them. And that's always really, that's one of those things that's always really exciting. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the way that music and film, I mean, even now, especially with the ability to remix different clips of films and stuff like that into music now in a more direct way, the way mm -hmm. that's adapted over the years is really fascinating. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. You know, it's funny you bring up Kubrick also makes me realize that I think another score, well, I think one of the first scores that I remember really taking note of was Clockwork Orange, mm -hmm. which I saw when I was 13 or 14. And, you know, certainly there's, you know, these right, you know, right there, we're talking about sort of you know, reconstituting these classical pieces, you know, the um, sort of amazing electronic work of Wendy Carlos, uh, and also some of the original music. And because there's, you know, there's some original pieces mm -hmm. there too, that you know, outside of the kind of uh, uh, reconstituting of the canonical classical work. Um, and and that stuff is, is tremendous as well. And I think was one of the first things that I remember really noticing and keying into. What is the big difference for you? Is there is there a big difference for you between storytelling when you're writing a song versus storytelling when it comes to doing a film score? Because I mean, obviously they're very different ways of telling the story, but ultimately the purpose is the same. It's a great question. It's it's so complex. I mean, what I would say is that you know one of the great um, creative and artistic blessings as a composer of getting a commission for a film score is that what you are being given is an inspiration to mm -hmm. connect to. Because for me, in composing any kind of piece of music, you need that sort of, that, that it's that prime mover of the emotional inspiration for it, which is your impetus and driving force to make you write this music or write this song in the first place. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, and, and of course it's, you know, it's not an accident why we have, you know, so many thousands of incredible songs about falling in love or heartbreak or something like this, right? It's like these, these experience of this intense emotion, you know, will drive this to be expressed in some way. And, you know, again, in the, in the context of, you know, if you're getting to engage with a great piece of cinema, you are able to have your emotional reaction to this piece of work and then kind of process it and express it through that music. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's that feeling of emotional inspiration, which is really shared here. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned a couple of inspirations uh, when it comes to... Uh, people who've inspired you, who are, who are some other influences, whether it's songwriters, whether it's composers, uh, that have inspired you over the years? Um, I think um, some people that sort of, I always come back to, I, I always come back to Bob Dylan, I always come back to Leonard Cohen. Um, you know, we talked about Birthday Party. Um, I, I think th those are people that have been, that have been really key in, in many respects. Um, I, I will say something that I also think about that I have a kind of new appreciation for now um, as a, you know, working in composition for film, I think even if, if you think about um, the model of a lot of the 
kind of great record, sort of golden age record album artists of like the 1960s, mm. the most sort of obvious canonical, you know, Beatles, Rolling Stones, Doors kind of triumvirate of that period, um, you know, who are all wonderful. Uh, but one thing that I find interesting now to think about is, you know, one of the key things that we deal with when we're doing, when we're doing um, a commission for a film score that's very different from being, say, the songwriter in the room is this question of time, right? That you need to have your inspiration, make your music, have it happen, and it all sometimes has to happen incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be, um, you know, you need to find in that not just um, sort of not that can't just be a stressful thing, right? That has to be something that you gain inspiration from that's liberating because, you know, as we all know, the songwriter, the composer might be laboring over these same two minutes of music for 10 years. You can't do that when you're doing these commissions, right? But that is in fact, and that can be for everyone can be a source of stress, um, but it can also be something that's liberating and exciting and can kind of bring something special out in you. And interestingly, I actually think that if you look at, um, again, these sort of, classic sort of golden age, you know, record business rock bands of the, of the 1960s. And these artists, they were in many ways working on this model. You know, certainly that's the whole Beatles thing, right? Like, oh, we got a couple of couple of weeks here. Like, whatever you got to do, come up with something. Mm-hmm. And this, this, there is a deadline. Like, this album is going to the presses and someone has to do something. There's a really interesting parallel to me between that and, you know, this movie's about to be at Sundance or this is being broadcast in two weeks. So, like, you can't just sit around and ponder it for years. Um, and that, that to me is a very inspiring parallel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything in particular that you gravitate towards when it comes to uh, when, if somebody approaches you with a project that they want you to write original music to, is there any particular yeah. type of stories or different types of films or TV that you gravitate towards more often than not? It's a great question. I would say on the one hand, more broadly, it can be quite varied in the sense that, you know, I've scored things that are so vastly different in, in style and sort of content of story. Um, But what I will look for is if, if this is something that there's a passion behind, if there's something where there's, any kind of sort of special aesthetic sort of cinematic idea behind it or a sort of really interesting socio-political or psychological idea that I connect to that inspires me, then that could be so many things. And I love mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, you could find inspiration in so many different types of, of stories and styles. That said, um, some of the, there have been a couple of films recently which have been, um, you know, for instance, you know, something like Watcher or something like Swallow in which some of the particular mm, sort of genre and influences of the films, you know, something like, you know, Watcher, so many of the, um, or at least some of, you know, Chloe's inspirations were, you know, things like the works of Roman Polanski and David Fincher. And, you mm-hmm. know, some of those films are my favorite films of all time. So, you know, certainly something like that, even though a film like Watcher is very much its own beast, you know, having some kind of spiritual connections to these other archetypes that, you know, that have meant so much to me. 
that's also really cool um, yeah. and is and is quite exciting. Uh, but again, you know, at the, at the same time, um, I am also very much excited by newness and something that you know, if the vision behind the movie is provocative and authentic and truthful and fresh, you know, and has some real kind of attitude and excitement behind it and some new ideas. That's, you know, always, you know, the most exciting. Um, so and that can come from anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's uh, especially as a, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of the, one of the more daunting things. And one of the things that I think some people come to, especially some people who really study film music and study the filmmaking process appreciate, but maybe people yeah. outside of that process think about is the fact that as the composer, you're essentially, you're basically going to be the last person bring their art to that process. And it can be pretty, I can imagine it's pretty intimidating for a lot of composers. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, you feel a tremendous amount of, it, that pressure, like you were, you were talking about, not just in terms of the, uh, time deadline that you have, but also the pressure to make your contribution to this person's art as important and ultimately will be, you're going to be one of the ones that, because of the emotional nature of music, that's really going to be kind of a make or break situation for, for yourself as well as the film. Yeah, that's um, that that's certainly true, and um, you know, a thing that that I really love is that you know, so many of the directors that I work with, you know, I know how much music means to them personally, just uh, personally and artistically, just as cinema means so much to me as a composer. You know that mm. you know, so many of the you know people will be writing their screenplays and listening to music and kind of taking inspiration from that vibe as they work on stuff. Um, so, you know, I love that interplay. I also love the fact that, um, you know, they're, of course, schedule-wise, they're all different ways in which someone can come onto a project as a composer. Sometimes you may be attached to it early on, but not really write any music until much later in the process. Um, but, you know, I have had some occasions in which Early on, when people are shooting, I might just, with a general idea of um, of the film, um, you know, compose some music, you know, very loosely and impressionistically, send it with the send it to the production team, um, just kind of as an exercise. And but there have been occasions in which I've done that, and then people wind up, you know, editors wind up cutting some scenes to that music, and it all starts to kind of inform things, and we go back and forth. And then, of course, there are other times when you may be brought onto a project you know, kind of at the last minute and it's just, you see the thing and run in and do it. Um, or there might be other times where um, somebody, um, you know, may have heard some other of your works and say, you know, I was inspired by this or maybe I was listening to some of this musical, I was writing the script and, you know, and I'd love for you to score the film. So they're all kind of interesting ways that those, those go back and forth. Mm. Uh, but, you know, directors with, and there are, I think so many, Probably, you know, most of really, you know, great directors have a real feeling for music and it really means a lot to them uh, mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. And uh, I, I think at this point it'd be good. We'll go ahead and transition into you because you have 
three scores for films that are playing at Sundance. You have two features and you have one short. You yes. mentioned Swallow earlier, which I really, which was really a terrific film. And it's funny, be, watching the three films that you have at Sundance, which are Watcher and Emily the Criminal are the two ne- features, and the Martha Mitchell effect is the short. The thing that's actually kind of, part of the reason I asked the question as far as whether there's anything in particular that you gravitate towards in specific projects is because it's weird really thinking about all three of these movies as well as something like Swallow. They all have female protagonists that we come to feel very empathetic about. And, you know, Swallow certainly is an example of that as well as a body horror movie, but it's ultimately the psychological aspect of it that we come away from most and in a way watchers kind of the same way. So that was kind of that was kind of my reasoning for asking that question because of the fact that it's it's just kind of interesting that you happen to have all three of these projects. They're premiering at the same time and they all happen to feel very empathetic towards the uh females at the uh center of them. Yeah, I mean I will say that, you know, there there are a few key things that I was really think about. Um, and doing a film score and that I always really come back to. Uh, one of them that I think you're pointing to here and that certainly these scores have in common is the idea that what's going to really motivate the score, and these are all things that were discussed heavily, um, you know, with, you know, particularly with um, Chloe, director of Watcher, and with John, uh, director of Emily the Criminal, was the idea of the emotional point of view of the protagonist and that a really essential thing is the kind of function of the score is to take us in to this emotional point of view and the psychological interiority. Mm. Um, that was absolutely also a key thing in, in Swallow as well. Um, but that was, you know, this was really something that we would sort of come back to time and again in these, in these conversations about these scores. Um, and that particular thing for me in sort of being sort of in my unconscious motivation of creating a piece of music or in the sense of okay we're finessing this and we need to make it better or more right what is that thing it's you know what makes it kind of right or wrong is what is is this in the correct emotional point of view you know of our protagonist of our character and is it speaking to kind of that authentic point of view and I, I really always come back to that. Um, and that's, you know, really key for those. Um, and I mean, especially, you know, like in, in Watcher, we had, you know, many conversations about that. Um, and I, I think about that quite a lot. And then, you know, the, the broader piece that I think about a lot as well, um, which, is, which is a bit more abstract or kind of touchy-feely is the more question of like, what is the tone of this world? Like the cinematic experience, what kind of world are we in? Mm. You know, um, how are we kind of, how are we to take this? Um, what kind of world are we entering here? And so, you know, in the case of, uh, um, you know, in the case of Watcher, um, there's, you know, Chloe described some of our, you know, the music that we were opening the film with as, you know, give it, having this affect of almost like a bit of a warped 
fairy tale, you know, the, the visuals and the style have this heightened aesthetic and there is this, this real kind of connection to an Eastern European and European quality to it. Um, and, and the music kind of goes with that and, and kind of supports that feel. Um, you know, whereas, you know, in a quite different way, you know, Emily the Criminal is set in a very real, gritty, grounded, contemporary Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you know, you know, much of the music, not all of it, but, you know, much of it is really kind of grounded in that kind of world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This kind of quality. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you, you mentioned that uh, sort of fairy tale quality about Watcher, at least, especially the beginning of being a different country. I, I, you know, it's funny that one of the first things I wrote down when I was watching that one was I, I distinct, especially at the beginning, I got distinct feel for like Bernard Herman, Jerry Goldsmith type inspiration in the way that the scores started to build. And then as her mental, as her mental state gets more and more frayed, you bring in more dissonance, you bring in more electronics. And I, I love when people use electronics and film scores. It's one of my favorite things uh, to listen to. And uh, yeah. especially, especially when it doesn't feel like, oh, they're just doing it as a way of keeping the cost down and, you know, oh, this is very obviously. The fact that there, when there's an artistic reason and when it's a fundamental fabric of the score is what really excites me. And all three of these kind of work in that same vein. And that's, that's one of the things that I really respond to in all three of them. What were some of your conversations about Watcher in terms of building what that score was going to sound like? So as I say, you know, the, the thing that we talked about the, the most really, um, and I, I sort of referenced this already, but we had the most conversations about the character, our lead character, Julia, in each scene, how she was feeling, what her level of fear was, what was her emotional state. Um, and, you know, you know, Chloe had thought about this in such detail. And in the case of, you know, of each piece, as I say, when I was either going to score it or kind of getting into it, that was the really um, key and inspiring piece to, um, to really think about and really drove things. Um, and I think, um, and, and again, it's, it's a bit of a vague and impressionistic thing, but even in the, in the electronics and stuff like that, there was still, there was always a bit of this influence of this kind of Eastern European Soviet block kind of sound, the types of synthesizer sounds that we were using and the way in which we were treating them, you know, had a bit of this, you know, um, sense that, that this was technology that was, this was not new technology, this was mm-hmm. technology the 1960s and then the early 1970s um and you know this kind of soviet era of stuff and of course there are these great soviet synthesizers um and i think th- those things really kind of blended together um and i think also you know there are times in the score where you might hear um a piece sort of pointed out you might hear a piece of a thematic idea played in a very fragmented 
abstract sort of way through some very warped synthesizer and it's barely it's almost barely perceptible it's like the hint of a melody and then later as the score goes on in the kind of the, the later minutes of the movie um you might hear that theme much more fully stated on like on strings and piano and things like that mm -hmm. and now it's be something kind of implied or in the back of the head is now becoming more explicit you know that which that which was implicit is now becoming more explicit and that of course you know speaks to this this dynamic of of the film and this sort of anxiety and this paranoia and the sense of she's never you know 100 percent sure of what exactly uh is happening yeah yeah uh, that, was an that we really enjoyed yeah, and, and one of the things that I appreciate about these scores, and I mean, even, you know, even Emily the Criminal, which does definitely have some more traditional action beats and more traditional step pieces, but one of the things that I really appreciate about both of those scores certainly is that they're very muted. They're very muted for the most part. They're very much you're getting the feeling of suspense and tension that you're supposed to be feeling, but they don't go for the big emotional, big moments like something like Psycho or something like, you know, a traditional or even something like Goldsmith would do. They're, they keep very much to the surface, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about listening to all of these. And, and uh especially with something like Watcher where you are building to this moment, this climax where in building and continuing to build where you're still not completely sure, you're fairly certain that you know that she's, what she's feeling is very much correct, but you also, there's also a sense that you can't necessarily help but think, well, is she over-exaggerating things? Because... She's isolated in this new country, and I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the movie and the score. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think that for for Watcher, and, I, and th again, this is a philosophy that I would apply really to any score, is that I don't want to, I, and this also comes, I would say also from, both from you know Chloe's direction and also from my own taste as a viewer, you know, the audience, you want the audience to make their own decisions, come to their own conclusions about what's happening. I don't want to come from the outside and you don't want to ruin it for the audience by coming in and here comes the composer saying, here's what's really going on. Yeah. Audience can figure that out. But from the point of view, the score, whatever is happening or not, we want to be truthful to how she's feeling mm -hmm. right or wrong because uh, that those are, these are her authentic emotions and experiences. And, and as long as we stay to that, we know that, you know, because we, you know, we know that we're then in a, in a truthful place. And I, and my experience as a viewer, and uh, just as a fan of cinema, I, and I think for, you know, for many people, if you feel that now you're being pushed around or, or by, you know, here comes the composer sort of imposing some other meaning, which isn't necessarily earned. And it's this kind of bottled pathos it's just, it's, you re unconsciously rebel as a viewer and you just become irritated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, and that's just even just my taste, um, um, just as, as someone watching the film. Oh, I was, I was going to say, you know, about um, Emily the Criminal, you know, to your point about action scenes and things like that, I think that 
you know, the idea there absolutely was like, you wanted th those actually, the nature of those scenes was that, you know, these scenes are kind of speaking for themselves. And to the extent that music is doing, is, is you know, sort of engaging with them, um, music is going to be, you know, what we'll discuss is we're going to feel very interior. We're not sort of throwing on bombastic stuff from, from the outside. Yeah. This is, this is about the experience of our protagonist there. And you also, again, this, the overall style of that film and of those scenes, it's very, it's quite, you know, grabbing and jarring and realistic. It's not a kind of mythical, you know, kind of, uh, style it's, it feels very real and realistic and grounded and you want to honor that mm -hmm. um and and then you know and then conversely sort of the moments in which we kind of step out a little bit more musically in that film are moments in which we're more with emily and her feelings and her emotions and her reflections on kind of her deeper emotions and some of the deeper themes of, of the film. Um, and there are a couple of moments in which the music really kind of engages with that a bit more because on the one hand, this, you know, the, the film is very much a thriller mm -hmm. and it has that aspect. And, but on the other hand, it is a story that is also timeless and universal and a coming of age story and a self-actualization story. And these are human experiences which are not specific to just these circumstances and being in Los Angeles, these are eternal. Um, and, you know, having a couple of moments to kind of engage with that um, musically was also very important um, to John, uh, the director, and, you know, we were able to find those moments. One of the things, so one of the things that you uh, mentioned is one of the things I was kind of interested in, because in both Watcher and Emily the Criminal, there are moments where you would naturally, like we've been instinctively trained to expect movie, music at places, and there aren't. And I, you know, I'm somebody who, it's, it's fascinating to see the way people use music in films, but it's also interesting to see when they don't. And what are those conversations like with a director when it comes to deciding what scenes you're going to put music in versus what scenes you don't, and is there any real tension in some of those scenes where it's like you feel like, oh, there would be something great that I could probably do music here for versus maybe the director saying, no, I don't necessarily want music there. I will tell you, as it happens, despite being a composer, um, because I am, you know, as far as my engagement with music, you know, uh, you know, above all is these things, such a, a fan of cinema. In many cases, um, putting these movies aside, I am very often arguing to remove music, including sometimes arguing to remove music that I myself have composed uh, in the mix. Not because I have any problem with the music, or, or at least, or sometimes to pare it down, not because I have a problem with the piece of music that I've created, um, but simply because I feel for some reason or other dynamically that we do not need it. Um, and it's, you know, I, I feel it's, it's essential for me for, you know, most of the scores that I do stylistically, music needs to be there for some reason. It needs to be serving some real subtextual purpose. It needs to be dialing into a subtext or a truth or an authenticity, which is there, but which we in the audience might 
not fully kind of perceive in the right way. So we don't want to just echo what we're already seeing because what do we need that for? You know, yeah. we've already, we're already looking at it. It is already this visual medium. There are so many other things already. And um, so, so that's certainly a key thing. And there are also times in which I may have, um, and this is often something we'll get to in the mix, we may have a much bigger piece of music and we might in the mix just sort of tone it down in some ways or, you know, certainly when you're working with a great, uh, mixer, as I've you know had the pleasure of doing on on many of my scores, you know, including these, you might sort of pare back pieces of it so it's not just blasting through a scene to moments of silence and then you come up and down again. It's certainly something um, that we discussed um, quite a lot uh, in in Watcher, um, but I'll also say you know these are these are films that had both you know really terrific sound designers and sound mixers, but also these you know both Chloe. And John, these are really great directors who have a great sense of cinema and the general kind of architecture of, you know, how music is going to be used and how we'll kind of go back and forth with, you know, they had a great vision for, and these are things we were very much on the same page about. Um, but usually when it comes to that conversation, um, more often than not, um, I would be the one um, arguing to remove something, um, mm. not not to add it. And you know, there are times when like, maybe we'll have spotted something and I'll say, you know, I think we should try something here. Um, and, uh, but usually, you know, but I'm, you know, I, I err on the side of being more, more conservative about that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, and you know, certainly less is more. I think in a lot of cases, I mean, especially in cases like these where so much of the story is visual, and so much of what we're, what, and I mean, obviously, cinema being a visual medium, I mean, that's that's natural. But the fact of the matter is, it's like you do have moments where it's like, just like not having dialogue in specific moments impacts a moment, not having music impacts a moment as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do kind of understand where you're, where you're coming from when it comes to the idea that, you know, yeah, maybe we should pull back a, little bit um going back to what you were talking about you know you were you were talking about sort of the style of synthesizers that you were um inspired by when it came to watch her i it, it's funny with emily the criminal one of the things that really was going off in my head watching it i was thinking of heat and i was thinking of drive which are other films which the scores and the use of synthesizers is very distinctive um when you get a film like that where it's like there's a particular sound, because obviously not all synthesizers sound the same, but is that something where you are building off of your own experience of music of that era, or do you have to search out sort of inspirations to sort of get an idea of what that sounds like in your head? Um, two things I would, I would say about that. One is that, um, you know, for a lot of the, when we get into sort of specific sounds, I feel like a lot of that tends to be quite intuitive. Like you're just kind of doing it. It's almost kind of in the back of your mind and you can just looking at the image and you can just feel, oh, this kind of feels right in this world. And this doesn't feel so good. And a lot of these even conversations about sound are having kind of, you know, semi-subconsciously sort of in the back of the mind. Um, and I'll add that, um, you know, I did a lot of work um, uh, with my good friend, uh, Chris Ruggiero on the uh, on a lot of the uh, synth 
uh, work and sounds and Emily the criminal. Um, but I would also say that actually what I was thinking about more than any of that, um, as far as say the, um, the sort of tension or action kind of aspects of the film Emily the criminal um, was a bit more conceptual and more philosophical. So actually the, the thing that I thought about quite a lot, even though sonically it's completely unrelated, um, was No Country for Old Men. Mm. Because there, and it's the principle of it, not so much the sounds, but right. just the principle of the idea that you have these very, there are moments that can be of great tension. And knowing that if, you know, in that film, um, which um, is this, you know, great work by Carter Burwell, that they're, avoiding breaking the tension by having some sort of explicit music on top. Mm. That the way, given the cinematic language of that film, and it's a different sort of thing from Watcher, but in that kind of thing, if you start putting something else on top, it's gonna kind of break the tension. Yeah. And there's a kind of fourth wall dimension and we're no longer gonna feel like, oh, this is real, we're in this moment of tension and it will become less tense. And so that principle of we're gonna use music, but it's, you know, in some of these moments, again, that are more tense, this should be more felt than heard. You want, when you're in those scenes, and again, it's not always the case. This doesn't, does, by no means does this apply to every film or every scene, but for some of these scenes in this film, you don't want to suddenly be like, oh, here comes the composer. You wanna be really in this world with the protagonist and it's meant to feel kind of realistic um, in, in the classic sense. Yeah, No Country for Old Men is a really great com uh, comparison when it comes to both of these films and their use and its use of music. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's definitely one of those films where you may not necessarily think about it in the moment of watching the film the first time, but then you go back and it's like, well, wait a minute, where's the music in that? And it's so subtle that it's like you don't necessarily think about it, but you also think, well, wait a minute, there's so many times in that movie that didn't require music that is, it's always exciting. And it's, uh, that was as a, as actually very, it's, I, I didn't really think of that comp, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a strong one. Uh, transitioning yeah. to your, your third film, which is a short film, the Martha Mitchell effect. What is, is there any difference for you transitioning because it's not certainly not the first documentary that you've done because he also did minding the gap which i absolutely adore um what is is there a big difference for you when it comes to scoring a narrative feature versus a documentary it's a great question i think that you know some of my first films that i scored were documentary films and i found it really interesting and exciting. And what I found was that there was in fact an opportunity um, to apply on some level, some of the kind of same fundamental principles that I, are, are, I'm really drawn to in narrative scoring to documentary film. Now, with, you know, which is to say, particularly in a kind of more verite film, like Minding the Gap, Rich Hill, Marina Abramovich, The Artist is Present, which was, you know, my first film score, essentially, that you could, you know, structure your music in a thematic way, like in a classic film score, and that you could, you know, still, you know, motivate everything by 
you know, by the sort of interiority of your of your protagonist and have it structured in that really rigorous, classic, cinematic way, as opposed to that more kind of reality TV, like here's a funny scene, here's a this scene where it's kind of on the nose and you see that sometimes. And, you know, no, like you some, do something which is going to enhance the sense of dramatic unity to the piece. Um, so particularly in these kind of more cinema verite kind of documentaries, I would say that my concerns in those in these respects can often be very much the same, you know, um, and I I find that exciting. Now, the one of the differences is that when you're finding when you're developing your thematic structure for the score in a documentary, you may have to sort of think outside the box in terms of finding how you're going to kind of deploy your thematic ideas to kind mm -hmm. of draw everything together and enhance the sense of dramatic unity, because many of these films of necessity because they have not been scripted because you know you know finding a situation um their structure may be inherently just a bit more chaotic than in a film that somebody sort of scripted with a more kind of tight conventional three-act structure right mm -hmm. and so you in many senses have the opportunity as opposed to help to draw things together or invite again without telling people how to think to invite the audience to sort of compare and contrast a moment in the first act with a moment in the third act and sort of parallel them in some ways and draw them together. Um, but also certainly the question of style and the tone of the film and how we're going to kind of take this, you know, there are some documentary scores um, that I have done where, you know, it's, it's quite subtle and sort of grounded um, and have this more verite feel. And there have been other things like, um, uh, like Nanfu uh, Wang's film in the same breath for, you know, for HBO that we had out this last year, you know, extremely heightened, very stylized. There's an almost, you know, horrific kind of sound to it. Right. Um, and, you know, and that, is the sort of thing that can be part and parcel of sort of supporting the filmmakers overall vision for how they want this piece to feel. So I've been very fortunate in that the documentaries that I um, have been commissioned for are things in which, you know, the directors have a kind of larger cinematic vision for the piece. And they, you know, are looking for me as, as a collaborator to kind of help, you know, bring that to life. Mm -hmm. Um, with with the Marshall or the Martha Mitchell effect, so much of it is historical footage, documentary footage of you know clips and stuff that is very much has been has been available over over time. Uh, how is what is the challenge of scoring something like that? compared to something like, say, Minding the Gap, which is more of a verite, more of a yeah. narrative that's building itself out over the time of the film? It's a great question. And it's, I would say it's very much a technical matter, which mm -hmm. is to say, in a more verite kind of film, um, you, you know, what I will often do, and, and this parallels something even like Emily the Criminal or Watcher, you might be selective about which sort of, let's say it's kind of dialogue scenes you're scoring, right? You might mm -hmm. score some of them, but you don't have to, you know, it's like you're scoring them if there's something to be added, if there's nothing to add, you might, you might opt to stay out of it so as not to overdo it. And then in a, in a film like Emily the Criminal or Watcher, we are 
kind of going more all out and bigger and stepping forward more in the music and these more personal subjective moments and moments of montage where we're alone with the character, right? And um, that's where we really kind of come forward. In a more cinema verite type of documentary, you kind of have those choices and can take a similar point of view um, or a similar spotting, you know, uh, approach. In these kind of more archival based historical documentaries um, of which I've scored a number of these um, types of films, one thing is that you of necessity um, need more music in them to, you know, there are fewer opportunities to pull back because you need to enhance the unity, the dramatic unity of tying together, here's a short piece of footage, here's a still image, here's an interview subject speaking on camera, here's some, you know, you're coming from all these different kinds of sources and one of the things that you are doing as a composer is again, enhancing the dramatic and aesthetic unity. You're taking things from all these different sources and the music is helping to kind of tie them all together and bridge them together. Um, like in, you know, I, I would say most, the most obvious comparison would be in a, um, uh, you know, in a narrative film that there's just like a montage, right? That's, you're drawing all different sort of moments and places together and it's being set to either a piece of score or a song. Um, that sort of um, that sort of logic or philosophy is being applied to much of the film, mm -hmm. um, and that's a that's a kind of unique thing that that one needs to do there, and yet at the same time find a way to still make it kind of be dynamic and interesting, so it doesn't feel um, as if it's sort of wallpapered, you know. Um, and yeah, it's really in each case it's about both sort of the aesthetic storytelling, but also in this case, just kind of editorial and cinematic style needs of mm -hmm. the film. You know, it, it's funny, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that people listen to music to, you know, get inspiration while they're working and stuff like that. Yeah. I would imagine that is obviously, when you're working as a composer, that is... Is that something that you find yourself doing or do you find yourself kind of doing, listening to other things while you're working or do you listen to anything at all while you're working on a new piece of music? I'd say that I probably don't listen to too much while I'm working on it. Um, I think there are times, not always, but you know, sometimes I made sort of, if I'm thinking about a project, may kind of do some deep dives and just sort of, um, and this may be even before something has been shot, maybe just at kind of at the script stage, you know, listen to, you know, some classical music and just sort of other interesting pieces in a very broad um, kind of sense. While I'm working on something, not even out of any special philosophy, just because of time constraints, I'm probably not listening to tons of music or certainly not listening to a lot of music that's yeah. particularly <laughs> for the project. Um, uh, yeah. Are there any film composers now or like who are who are some of the composers that kind of inspire you now well i i mean one one thing that i would definitely want to mention is you know certainly in making music you know going back to the days of playing in bands, something that i am of course very inspired by some of the people that i will play music with mm -hmm. um and will you know continue to do work on on my scores with. Um, so um, certainly my um, my very good friend, Chris Ruggiero, um, 
who, who has worked with me on so many of my scores, sometimes as a co-composer or, you know, we collaborate on, on additional music or on other production. He was very involved with um, scoring Emily the Criminal, for example, um, and is also one of the composers on the Netflix short doc, The Martha Mitchell Effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always have a you know great time working together. Um, and also uh, Robert Picior, who's a great composer and, and string player. He played the strings on um, both of the both the Watcher and and on Emily the Criminal, um, and also was one of our uh, composers on Martha Mitchell Effect uh, as well. Oh. Um, and he plays strings on almost every score that I do. Um, and these are people that I played music with for years, uh, including before any of us were involved with film scores at all. Um, and that's that's such a wonderful part of the process and such an exciting, especially, you know, say like with recording strings with Bob, say at the, at the end of, of a project and things are really kind of coming to life. That's, that's so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, because you start off with more of a songwriting background before you uh, turn to film composition. Do you still every once in a while when you, if you get an, inspired write uh, traditional songs or are you primarily just into uh, writing film music now? I, I still do both. I mean, I would say most of the music I'm composing lately is, you know, it's instrumental music. Um, that said, um, over the course of the last year, um, I've had uh, commissions to write several original songs. I think I did three or four just in the last, you know, eight to 12 months or, or something like that. Um, a, a number of them for uh, for wonderful director, Oliver Fox Lerner, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, and we did um, a number of pieces that were sung by Emily Forsyth. One was this kind of Velvet Underground influenced kind of song, another, um, a more almost kind of period, early jazz vocal kind of piece. Um, and, uh, and another song that, that we just finished putting in for another film, which I was singing actually, which was a kind of darker, uh, interesting song. So um, yeah, it's, that's been a really wonderful thing, kind of engaging with that, mm-hmm. engaging with that as well at the same time. And it is, it is nice to do both. Okay. Definitely. All right. Uh, where can people where can people find your music in addition to the uh, scores for the films that you've composed? Um, quite a lot of the music is available on uh, on Spotify and on these you know all of these various streaming services mm-hmm. to one degree or another. Um, we um, starting to do some physical releases. Um, so. The score for Swallow is out digitally on Lakeshore Records, um, for example, but also out on vinyl and CD, pink vinyl, on uh, Ship to Shore. <laughs> um, and um, that's something we're kind of looking to do for more of the releases lately, which which I really enjoy. And, um, you know, that's something that's important to me and I, I think is good for all of us music people as, as listeners. And um, so that, that, that's exciting. And um, I'm not sure if we talked about this already, but we're finishing a soundtrack album now for um, that Lakeshore is putting out for the film Catch the Fair One. Um, and that film is coming out um, uh, through IFC in 
early February and okay. soundtrack out around at that time. All right, excellent. Uh, yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be uh, looking out for that. I actually just got an email about that the other day, so I will be sure to check that one out. Terrific. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time, uh, Nathan. It's it's been a wonderful discussion. I, it was really great to get to know you, get to know your music, get to know some of your thought process about film music. Thank you, Brian. Yes, this was so much fun. Really appreciate it. I want to thank Nathan for his time. Uh, we actually had to uh, pick up a little bit to get a proper conclusion to this interview the next day. Uh, and I, I'm so grateful for his time. It was wonderful to talk to him about film composing, about musician, about composing in general. And I'm really grateful for uh, his, his time. It was terrific to uh, be able to talk to him for as long as I did. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more of his work in the future. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. I will have my usual uh, post-film festival wrap-up, although it's, it'll be, because there won't be any interviews that I have to uh, share with it, it'll be a pretty much a shorter one. But I hope you enjoy that episode anyway, and I've got a lot of great things down the pike for this coming year. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. This is Brian Scuttle, and you can... Check out my work, as always, at www.sonic-cinema.com. Mm -hmm.